Father, we thank and praise you for what we were thinking about this morning in uh, 1 Samuel 3. Thank you that you are a God who speaks and who loves to speak to his children. Thank you for your word that we have in our hands, the Bible. Thank you for the freedom we have to meet together, to hear from you, to encourage each other, to praise you through song, to... um, to pray, to respond to what you're saying to us. We recognise there are brothers and sisters all over the world today for whom that will not be possible, who may indeed be meeting in fear of their lives. We think of brothers and sisters even today who have lost their lives as they have met met together um, to hear from you and to encourage each other. And so we pray that you would speak to us this evening pray that you would, uh, again, unstop our deaf ears, that we might hear your voice. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, if you have one of the Bibles on your seats or nearby, uh, you could find page 1226, uh, 1 John 2, verse 18. Um, I'll give you a moment to find it. But we're going to be looking at the next little section, 1 John 2, verse 18, through to the uh, to verse 27. Not quite the end of the chapter, but almost. There we go, page 1226, if you have one of the Burgundy Bibles. Let me read those verses to us. Starting from verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Back in March, there was a a study done that you might have read about. There were subsequent uh, newspaper and magazine articles off the back of this study. And the study was to do with the way that news spreads on social media. They were asking the question, what news goes viral? This goes boom around the world incredibly quickly. And what news doesn't? I don't know if you saw it. It was very interesting. There was a particular emphasis to do with why does fake news spread so quickly? Why does fake news particularly get such an amazing reach so fast? 
And the initial thinking when they began the study was that, well, it's all to do with bots. It's to do with automated systems that share information on social media. But then the study showed, actually, it wasn't to do with bots. They were, they were able to discount them and see that actually it was to do with people. So the study showed that tweets, that's Twitter, if you don't know what Twitter is, well done. Tweets found um, with falsehoods reach, on average, 1,500 people on Twitter, and they spread six times faster than untruthful, sorry, than truthful tweets. So if there's false tweets, they spread quicker and they spread further. And what they did was they examined um, 12 years of tweets and data trying to work out why this happened. Um, they went all the way back to 2006 when apparently Twitter began, um, where the early adopters, I guess, jumped on board. They removed the various factors. It was a, a proper scientific study. And it turned out that those tweets containing false information were spread more quickly because they were novel and because people were excited by them. It was new information they hadn't seen before. They elicited different emotional reactions than the norm. Maybe surprise, maybe disgust. And so they concluded that novelty and emotional charge was what seemed to be generating these tweets. That was why false tweets went further or spread further or spread quicker. So there was a quote from a guy called Alex Kasprak who works for Snopes in California. They are a sort of fact-checking journalist fact-checking website. Um, he said this, if something sounds crazy stupid, you wouldn't think it would get that much traction, but those are the ones that go massively viral. And the point is, we love novelty. We love novel news, different things. Maybe in part that's due to a creativity in us, but maybe largely it's due to a sort of anti-authoritarian tendency in us. We love to slightly rebel. We love the quirky. There's this tendency that says, well, eat the fruit in the garden and do away with God. It'll be fine. A tendency that says, don't walk on the grass. And so we just have to walk on the grass. So maybe that inbuilt de- desire away from authority that leads us towards novelty was in part why fake news was spreading so quickly. And that could be nothing. Or I take it that can be a profoundly dangerous thing, as it was here in John's letter. Have a look down with me, if you've lost it. Page kind of 1225 and onwards. It's... It's a sort of letter, I take it. There is no obvious recipient at the beginning. John just kind of loops in there. So maybe it's, maybe it's more than a letter. Maybe it's some kind of pronouncement from a, a guy with authority to churches that he had close links with. has some kind of authority over them. And so he writes to them. And if I'm honest with you, and you may have spotted this as it was read, I think John's letter can be quite confusing. In fact, I think John's writing, more generally, could be quite confusing or frustrating. It is remarkably non-linear. It just kind of goes round and round, and he picks a theme and he deals with it, and then he goes round again a bit later on, and he's got different themes interweaving and sort of circling round or perhaps circling up. I want to try and just unpack the letter slightly for you, more generally, to give you a bit of a handle on what's going on, and then you should hopefully see where each little bit comes in, or at least a bit more clearly. 
Essentially what John seems to do as he writes is he gives them three dangers, these people he's writing to, three dangers of what different false teachers have been saying to them at the time. If you flip back a page, I'll give you a bit of a recap. And in recapping, that will hopefully give us a quick glance at those three dangers in slightly more detail. And if you've been with us in previous weeks, then you will know some of this. If you haven't, then the stuff's on the website, so do listen into some really helpful talks. Um, there's three dangers then. The first one, Tom picked up in uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. The first danger is a danger that says you can't really know Jesus, or, or Jesus was not really a person as he came. And yet John says Jesus can be known. John himself saw him, touched him, heard him. And so as you hear and believe John's message, so you can have fellowship with John, and therefore you can have fellowship with God himself. Because John has fellowship with God himself. As we believe the gospel message, the apostolic gospel, so we can know the God who made us. Why does John kick off this way? Well, he's not writing into a vacuum. So presumably there have been some people doubting his message about Jesus, doubting what we particularly call the incarnation, that is that God himself, in the second person of his son, came in the flesh, physically, with a body. And you see, if that truth goes, then everything else falls like a house of cards. And yet John is saying, no, 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 I saw Jesus, I touched Jesus, I spent time with Jesus, you can trust my message. And as you trust my message in the gospel, so you can have fellowship with him, you can know the God who made you. But then he moved on from there, from uh, 1 verse 5. So the first doubt seems to be a doubt about the incarnation, about Jesus. The second one, 1 verse 5 to 2 verse 2, has something to do with a doubt about the need to trust Jesus, or to keep trusting Jesus. There's a particular phrase in 1 verse 8 that sometimes we use when we have a kind of confession of sin as a church. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, and then if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, verse 6, we, we lie and do not live out the truth. That is... It seems the people, the teachers, are not just denying Jesus in the Incarnation, but perhaps the need to trust Jesus as Saviour. So maybe these false teachers were saying, well, we have no sin, we don't need forgiveness. We don't need the blood of Jesus. We don't need the cross. Maybe they were saying they were perfect and sinless. Maybe they were saying God didn't care so much about sin. Regardless, John wants to convince the people he's writing to that we have Jesus, and we have him as a saviour. He says, for the believer, it's a daily dependence on the atoning death of Jesus. It's a trust in his death in their place, the sufficiency of his blood. For, for all the world, I take it that's for all kinds of people. The first bit, the first, the first denial that's happening is Jesus the Incarnation. The second is Jesus the Saviour. The third then seems to be Jesus the Lord. And that's 2 verse 3 onwards to about 11. So they're not simply losing Jesus the Incarnation or losing Jesus the Saviour, but losing Jesus the Lord. That is, we become believers in Jesus. We trust his death for ourselves. 
We turn to him for forgiveness and so we live for him and not for us. We can't just have him as saviour and not have him as Lord. And so John will go on about things like love for him and commands and love for his people. Again, if you were here last week when Phil came to visit us, um, the idea, we saw that very clearly, of obeying his commands and loving his people going hand in hand. So 2 verse 9, for example, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Then maybe these false teachers of the time were peddling the idea it doesn't really matter what you do now that you are a Christian of sorts. It doesn't matter how you treat other people. Do you know it's just about me and God, they might be saying. It's a personal thing. Don't worry about others. Just worry about you and God. And that seems to be the three different attacks And if you read anywhere in John's Gospel, I think you'll find one of those three threads um, being pulled out. So one is an attack on the Incarnation, one is an attack on Jesus as Saviour, and then one is an attack on Jesus as Lord. Their obedient love um, for other Christians. And those three ideas he will circle around again and again and again in the letter. I think it's probably worth saying as well at this point that each of those three, to deny each of those three in our culture... I reckon it's quite attractive. In our flesh, in our unfinished, unsanctified nature, living in these bodies, still battling and fighting sin, I think each of those three things is an attractive falsehood to latch onto. So to deny the incarnation, that Jesus really came in the flesh, that he is the only way you can know God, just means we're a bit less exclusive. It means we're not quite so certain. It means that there are all kinds of ways of knowing God. It means that there are all kinds of um, paths up the mountain, as our culture would say. It's a very popular idea in our day. But John won't let us have that. He will say, I saw Jesus. Jesus is the way we know God. The only way we know God. The second one, to deny our need of forgiveness from Jesus. No one likes to hear that they're sinful. No one likes to hear they need forgiveness. That's offensive. If we do believe that we're sinful in some way, we'd rather work our way back, wouldn't we? We'd rather not have to accept his grace, but to to earn it in some way. Again, it's very popular. To deny the need to obey Jesus and to love other Christians, the third one, come on, I totally get that, don't you? To to do things your way rather than having to listen to him the whole time? Because we believe the lie that his commands are burdensome. We believe the lie that living his way is going to rob us of life. To put ourselves selfishly at the top of the agenda rather than to think of other people. Of course that's attractive. And so each of those three, and we'll finish with that in a bit, I think we need to guard our hearts from drifting towards them. Because for each of them, there's something in us that will go after them if we're given half the chance. What we're going to do uh, for, for our time this evening, though, is just to ask three questions of the text from 2.18 to 27. 2.18 to 27. The three questions are, what were they saying, who were they, and why should we ignore them? Okay, so for these false teachers, what were they saying, who were they, and why should we ignore them? What were they saying? Well, have a look down at verse 22 and 23. 
with me. John says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You see, here's the thing. Everything hangs off what you make of Jesus. If you don't believe that, if you were there at the right place and the right time, and you could see him and touch him, if you don't believe he was Jesus of Nazareth, dying in the place of his people, the sufficiency of his death for you, then you undo any possibility of relationship with God. So if you deny him, then you deny the Father also because you can't know him. That's why John is so stark. That is why it is so important for him to protect them from these truths. And in our current culture, I think that sounds awfully narrow-minded and slightly mean, doesn't it? In a world of so-called tolerance and generosity, we sound remarkably intolerant and remarkably ungenerous. We live in a world that says, well, to me, God is like this. Here's how I like to know him. Let me tell you my story of me and God. Is it fair that John is so categorical? Is it fair that he is so keen on protecting the importance of Jesus? Does it matter if we deny Jesus as the Christ? Well, I say this humbly, and I think you're probably going to know where I'm going to go with this, but yes, it really does matter. Because God has revealed himself to us in his Son. And if he's revealed himself to us in his Son, it would be profoundly arrogant to ignore that and to come up with our own ideas of what God is like, of how we can know him. I've used this story before at Magdalen Road Church, but let me... um, Imagine I were to describe my wife Zoe to you. Some of you will know her. 20 years um, married this year. Um, All the things that I like about her. Just imagine this lady with me. Maybe close your eyes. She's, She's funny. She's clever, that's cleverer than me. She's beautiful. I love her, her brown eyes and her dark brown hair. And at about that point, you should be getting twitchy. Because if you know her, she has not got brown eyes and dark brown hair. She has got blonde hair and blue eyes. And so, to put it carefully, to believe what I want to believe about her rather than I see who she, who she is, gets really dangerous. In one sense, she has revealed herself to me. I can't make her up. I can't pretend she's somebody else. I can't ignore who she is. Well, so God has revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself to us in his Son that we might know him. And it would be profoundly arrogant and dangerous to say, well, to me, God is like this, guys. Here's how I like to know God. Here's how I like to think of him. Because that is not how he's revealed himself to us. Because that is not who he is. He sets the terms on how we know him. And it's striking because church history is littered with misunderstandings and false truths about Jesus. The problem is we love fake news. And we love novelty. And we love fresh ideas. It means as well we need to guard within the church the truth about who he is. Because for many, Jesus is some kind of revered individual. 
people see something of how important he is. People are attracted to Jesus. And so lots of people have a theory or an idea about who this Jesus is. They want to claim him for themselves. Which is why we must be careful and we must weigh anything we hear with what we read of Jesus in the scriptures. Here they were denying that Jesus is the Christ. Here they were seeking to undo what he had taught them. So that's something of what they were saying. Now who were they? And again, John is very stark. He describes them as antichrists. Verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. Or flip down to 22. Um, Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the antichrist. So what's going on? Again, it sounds pretty stark. Um, John knows of an antichrist, the antichrist, verse 18 as he puts it. But as well as that, he has got little antichrists in mind as well. What does he mean? Well, the antichrist may be a particular individual through whom anti-Christian forces will, will focus before the return of Christ. This period sometimes called the last days, or as John puts it, verse 18, the last hour. It's definitely possible, it's definitely what's going on. But Jesus himself will speak of false prophets who will deceive the Lord's people, Matthew 24. Paul will speak of a man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2. It's the first ever talk from the Bible I had to do was on that. And it seems that these forces will intensify as time moves on. As the time for Jesus to come back gets closer and he will come back one day, then it seems there will be more opposition against him. It could be, then conceivably, an individual in history. Or it could be more the spiritual forces that stand against Christ, presumably at root the devil being the ultimate antichrist. It all hinges on him. As I have a look um, over, I don't want to steal whoever's thunder this is from a few weeks' time, but 4 verse 3. Do you see every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God? This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So regardless of what's going on, whether it's the big antichrist or antichrists, these false teachers are part of that family. They are antichrists in the sense that they are antichrists. They are against the gospel, seeking to undo what he has done. And I just wonder, as it gets harder to live as a Christian, which I think it probably is getting, I think as culture gets more and more intolerant, then whether this spirit is, in one sense, strengthening, at least in the West, where views on all kinds of things are challenged, where perhaps we are more marginalised and mocked and silenced than we might have been in years gone by. I wonder whether that spirit is, in some sense, strengthening. The thing that's striking, though, about these antichrists that John writes of, it's striking for me, at least, is that they started off in the church. See that in verse 19? They, they divided the body of Christ. So he will say they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Uh, you get it again in 
4.1, which we just looked at, the dear friends do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Did you see that their behaviour in going out from the church and leaving shows that their beliefs were not orthodox? Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who leaves the church is a heretic. Of course not. But maybe it should give us cause to, to be concerned if a group separates itself as a kind of elite group, holier than thou huddle. Maybe people who are claiming a deeper understanding, a special knowledge, then and maybe we need to guard against that. Maybe that's a helpful illustration, a helpful apl- application from John here. When there are central truths of the gospel denied, or so the appetite for Christian community is quickly lost, and people leave. And I don't want to draw the lines too tight on this, but I'm struck by the way that currently ex-believers are now pedestaled and given a platform to speak. I find that striking and fascinating at the moment. You see it in all kinds of magazine articles or all kinds of things. Almost as if society is looking for excuses not to believe the gospel, itching ears that need to be fed perhaps. And they preach these kind of deconversion testimonies. How they used to believe this or that about Jesus, about God, about the Father. Now they've grown up and they see how immature and intolerant their beliefs were. And how now they see that that was wrong. They've seen the light. They see that this belief in God is childish. A belief in the sort of God is childish, whatever it might be. It's so common. I don't know if you read the internet, but it's there the whole time. And yet we love novelty. We love ideas that sort of stretch us and challenge us. There can be a love within people to move away from orthodox belief. Particularly it seems if it makes you look a little bit more like what the world thinks at this point. Maybe we like to define who God is. Maybe we like to make him in our image rather than being made in his image. Maybe we'd prefer to call the shots. Whatever it is, these believers, ex-believers, were a part of the body and then they went out seeking to destroy the faith of others. What are they teaching? Well, we've seen some of that. Who were they? Well, we've seen some of that. Why should we ignore them? That's what John seems to want to hit home for us. If we want to remain in fellowship with God through the gospel of the apostles, through Jesus, then John says we must listen. And this idea of remaining is quite important. I don't know if you spotted it as I read it earlier. Um, It it repeats itself a number of times. So come first with me to verse 24. This idea of remaining. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. That is, don't be disqualified by novelty. The the gospel they heard at the start is to remain in them. And if it does, they too will remain in the Son, united to him by faith, and so in the Father too. If this initial truth remains in them, so they will remain in Christ. But then have a flick as well to verse 19. 
They went out from us, these false teachers, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Again, it's the remaining word. They didn't remain in the community of faith. And I'll say this carefully then, that there's a sense in which you remain in Christ by remaining in his body, the church. These false teachers didn't remain in the community of faith. And so that initial gospel didn't remain in them, and so therefore they didn't remain in Christ. I don't want to draw the lines too tightly there. But it is striking, in our individualistic culture, people can say, well, can I be a Christian and not go to church? Can I be a Christian and not be a part of the community of believers? And I kind of want to say, well, sort of. Sort of, but actually... One of the ways you show that the gospel remains in you, that you show you're remaining in Christ, is that you are remaining, at least in a community of faith, you are united to the body of believers. And I'm aware for some of us that might be hard to hear, because we are in a culture that says it's just about me and God, yeah? And it's just a private faith that I have. But the Bible pretty regularly seems to say, it's actually, it's not just about me and God, it's about us and God. And being a part of a community, being a part of a body of believers, shows something at least of the fact that we are remaining in Christ because the gospel is remaining in us. Again, I don't want to push that too far because I think there are um, good reasons for leaving churches, probably good reasons for not being able to get to church as well. So ignore them, he says, because we want to remain in him. But then there's this slightly enigmatic statement as well. Um, Verse 20. He says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. So they have this anointing from the truth, he says. It's a bit complicated, I'll come on to it in a second. But then, look where he goes, verse 27. He picks up the anointing idea again. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as this anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. What's that? Well, What he's saying is we have this anointing from the Holy One. That is, we know the truth. Okay. We'll see what anointing means in a moment. But just latch onto that for now. And then he says, and because we have this anointing from the Holy One, then we don't need teaching. Does that mean I should just sit down and be quiet? Don't answer. What is this anointing that he is talking about? What is this anointing that he is talking about? And what is, why does this anointing mean that we don't need to be taught? What kind of teaching is he getting at? Let's pick up each of those things. What is this anointing, firstly? Anointing in the Bible, it seems to me, and we'll see it in a couple of weeks in Samuel in the mornings as well, but anointing in the Bible is a picture of confirmation from God, promising his people he will be with them and he will give them what they need. Okay, so it's confirmation from God that he will be with his people and he will give them what they need, the grace that they need to serve him. 
That might be a king or a high priest, which we'll find in the Old Testament. Um, Or later in the New Testament, there's an anointing for everyone. So we have the Holy Spirit. So he gives us his spirit that we might live for him and please him. He gives us the grace that we need. And you see, just as we needed God's Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts at first, when we heard and believed the Gospel and we trusted Jesus, so we need his Holy Spirit, his anointing now, to keep applying the truths of the Gospel each day. Let me give you a quote on this. Um, One writer puts it like this, he says, The antidote to falling into false ideas about the Christian faith is to be found holding fast to the initial statement given in the apostolic witness. And this is confirmed in our hearts by the anointing given by the Spirit. And that's why he says you don't need anybody to teach you. Because you have this anointing from God, because you have the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit who first opened your heart, the Holy Spirit who who started grace, but also the Spirit who continued with grace. Well, the reason you don't need anybody to teach you it's because you have his spirit living in you. But is it all kinds of teaching? Because John has just written them a letter. Teaching them. So why does he say you don't need anyone to teach you? And he's saying because you have the spirit as the divine teacher, you don't need fresh teaching. You don't need secret knowledge. You don't need new truth. You don't need new ideas. You've got the gospel. There isn't a gospel plus being peddled by these so-called teachers. If you have God's word in your hand, if you have God's spirit in your heart, you have all you need. So they don't need teaching because they have his spirit. They don't need fresh gospels because they have the gospel. That's the kind of teaching he's getting at. These folk claiming authority, claiming an anointing from God, claiming new ideas about God... John says, you don't need them. You don't need anything new. You've got all you need. You see what I mean about John's letters being kind of circular and slightly tricky at times to kind of follow and to latch onto what he's getting at. But I think those are the main things to take away from this. I want to finish slightly where I began though. I think these three false truths in John, we've just picked up one of them today, this getting rid of Jesus, has been our main focus for this evening. I think they are all attractive in our culture at the moment. One, get rid of Jesus. One, get rid of him as saviour. One, get rid of him as Lord. Those three ideas can be tempting for us. And so we need to guard our hearts. Because it's usually our hearts that go first. We're not hugely rational beings. We believe we are, but we're not. We believe what we want to believe. And we're attracted to novelty. And fake news has got something alluring about it. And so where we feel the pinch in our culture to not stick out quite so much as we have been, to when we get tired of going against the flow, when we get tired of keeping reading the Bible and thinking, what does this mean? What is the apostolic gospel? when we get tired of clinging on to it, because it would just be easier to go with the flow of everyone else. Now I think John would say to us, hold fast. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Because it's only in Christ that you have fellowship with the apostles 
through their gospel and therefore with the God who made us. Because it's his news. So keep holding on. Keep trusting him. However hard it gets, however alluring these other ideas might be, keep your eyes fixed on him. Let me pray for us and then Matthew will lead us in some singing and we will be sharing the Lord's Supper together as well. Father, we confess in one sense these ideas seem a long way from us and the sort of things that we are dealing with. But in another sense they are very contemporary and very relevant. Lord, we long that you would guard us from drifting away from Christ. Where perhaps we feel the pinch of being believers, where where we can feel awkward, where we can be tired of sticking out, of being different, where we can feel squished by the world. Would you help us please to keep trusting the gospel that you've given us? Help us please to keep trusting Jesus, the the incarnation, the reality of his bodily living on this earth. Help us to trust him as our saviour. Help us to trust him as our Lord and to live for him. In his name we pray. Amen.